Great to be with you again. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. A sermon titled today, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Luke chapter 7, I'm reading from uh, verse 36 to the end of the chapter. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And answering, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the death of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves a little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus received tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. You find that phrase repeated in the Gospel of Luke. Tax collectors and sinners were the outcasts of society. They were looked down on, but Jesus would eat with them, even tax collectors and sinners. But he'd also eat with Pharisees. In the culture of that day, the Pharisees were the ones who were serious about their religion. Unlike today, 
Back then, everyone respected religion, and the Pharisees were respected. They were sticklers for the law and for the traditions that had grown up around the law. They got some things right, other things they got wrong, very wrong. They had a subtle way of using the language of God's grace while trusting in themselves, and that's why Jesus called them hypocrites. A little later in this gospel, Jesus will parody them when he tells of two men who went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed like this, O God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, like this tax collector, unjust, adulterers, I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything I get. Meanwhile, the tax collector, standing afar off, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, this is the man that went down to his house justified, not the Pharisee. Last week, we learned about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus was baptized by him. Jesus and John were very much on the same page. They both came proclaiming the kingdom of God. They both proclaimed and preached the necessity of repentance and faith. The Pharisees were not on the same page with Jesus and John. They rejected John's baptism. They didn't agree with the message and they didn't like the messengers either. They criticized them both. Jesus finished up our, our portion last week by saying that they're like children in the marketplace. And, and John, he came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon. The son of man came both eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. There's no way to please them. Pharisees were not on the same page with Jesus. So it's rather surprising that a Pharisee invited him to dinner and perhaps even more surprising that Jesus would accept the invitation, but that's what happened. Actually, three times in Luke, Jesus accepts and has dinner with a Pharisee. And in none of those times does it go well. Well, this story begins with a dinner invitation, and I need to uh, just share a word about the dining customs of the day so we can understand what's going on here. Uh, back in those times, they didn't sit in chairs at a table like we do. The table was low to the ground, and guests would recline at table. That's the term that's used. That meant that they would lie on their side, propped up by an elbow, with their heads near the table and their legs extending backward from it. So if you look down from the ceiling, it would look like a wheel with spokes going out from it. It might be an open dinner where invited guests would be around the table, but then others would be free to come in, to stand in the back and, and listen to the conversation that ensued. It was also customary in those times for the host to provide water to wash the guest's feet and to greet the guest with a kiss and perhaps even provide oil to anoint his head. Well, on this occasion, as soon as Jesus came in, the situation got very awkward because there was a woman of the city who was a sinner 
who learned that Jesus would be there. All right, now we're Bible believers, so we believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, 20, 20, and, and so we, we consider all, all of us, we're all sinners, right? But, but Luke is actually using the word here in a more specialized sense. This woman of the city was known to be a sinner. She was notorious for her sin. In other words, she had a reputation and the reputation was not a good one. She bore a mark. And so she was an outcast. What was her sin? Well, we're not told. Um, Luke handles this tastefully. And that's worth noting, by the way. Uh, for some reason, people today think that everybody in the world needs to know everything about them. And uh, so they'll post on public platforms like Facebook and Instagram, the lurid details of their lives. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is neither necessary nor is it wise. Uh, learn a lesson from Luke here. Everybody doesn't need to know the details of your life. Yeah, a few people close to, but not everybody. Use a little wisdom here. Luke does. The Apostle Paul says it's a shame even to speak of the things that are done of them in secret. So we don't know what the woman's sin was, but we do know that she came in with a flask of ointment. That much was premeditated by her, but it's likely that the rest of it was not premeditated. She was there at Jesus' feet, and then she became overwhelmed with emotion and started to cry. And it wasn't just a little bit of weeping. Her tears were profuse to the extent that they began to fall on his feet and then she wiped his feet with her hair and then kissed his feet and then anointed those feet with the ointment that she'd brought and Jesus just lets it happen and the whole time she says nothing she probably couldn't say anything she says nothing, but she does a lot, and her actions speak eloquently. But the mood in the room, well, this was certainly unexpected. And the host, the Pharisee, says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If this man were a prophet, well, he is a prophet, and more than a prophet, he knows who and what sort of woman this is. And he knows who and what sort of man the Pharisee is. And friends, he knows who and what sort of people you and I are, even what we're thinking right now. Well, Jesus answers the Pharisee, but he hadn't said anything. No matter, Jesus answers him anyway, and he answers very politely. He says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee, King James Version. Master, say on. 
And in rabbinic fashion, Jesus tells him a little story about a creditor and two debtors who owed him money. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii, and neither could pay, so he canceled the debt of them both. Very short, very sweet, very concise. Now, one denarii was a day's pay for a working man. So 50 denarii was about two months' wages, considerable amount of money. The other owed 10 times as much, just shy of what might be two years' wages. So very, very roughly in today's value, uh, one of them owed $20,000 and the other owed $200,000. So it's as if the first man got his car loan forgiven and the other man got the mortgage on his house forgiven. Hmm, That's great. Simon is asked by Jesus, Which of the two do you think will love him more? Well, they're both going to love him, but the one that got his larger debt canceled, I suppose, says Simon, and Jesus says, you're right. Of course, Jesus has been setting him up because he's not only a prophet, he's a wise man. And so he then makes an application. I think Simon was probably ready for this. That's why he answered the way he does. But but Jesus now provides a little bit of uh, comparison and contrast. And it's actually very dramatic because he looks at the woman, but he speaks to Simon. And turning to the woman, he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. There's no attempt to downplay the seriousness of sin. But though her sins are many, they are forgiven. Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Now, only God can forgive sins. Uh, Do you remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we came across the story of the paralytic? The guy couldn't walk, but friends brought him to Jesus. They couldn't get into where he was, so they dug a hole in the ceiling and they let him down in front of Jesus in the midst of all the people. The guy can't walk, but Jesus looks at him and saw his faith and said, My son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, the people standing around, they they were thinking that this is, wait, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus 
on that occasion also perceived their thoughts and said, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven you or to say, rise and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, Mr. Paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that is just what he did. On that occasion, Jesus dramatically demonstrated his authority to forgive. Only God can forgive sin. No one's arguing with that. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are scandalized by it. And then Jesus demonstrates his authority by telling a man who cannot walk to walk. The man walks. And the Pharisees are forced to put all this together. Wait a minute, only God can, has authority to forgive sins. Jesus tells this guy with authority who can't walk to get up and walk. He's already told him his sins are forgiven. The guy gets up and walks and they put it all together. Hmm. It was very uncomfortable. Well, Jesus does have authority to forgive sins. And that's what he does here in our story today. Jesus forgave sin, but he's not done. He then directly addresses the woman for the first time clearly and authoritatively and says to her what he just indicated, your sins are forgiven. So there'll be no doubt. Those that were at the table around him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins. So we've come back around to the same thing. And that question, by the way, is left hanging. And that's by design. So you and I again can consider who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? That's the question that we all have to consider. He concludes by saying to the woman, your Faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus is the one who forgives sins. You got sins? Go to Jesus. He's the one who has authority to forgive sins. He loves to forgive sins. He explains he comforts. So what does God have for us in this story today? I'd like to suggest a few things for consideration. The first I've already indicated, Jesus forgives sins. Whether you owe 50 denarii or 500 denarii or 5,000, it is his nature to forgive. This is true of the Father of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. He desires to forgive. He will reason with us, as it says in Isaiah. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall become like wool. To be forgiven. Now, to be forgiven, we have to acknowledge our sin, as David understood in Psalm 32. When he tried to cover his sin, he suffered. But then, when he acknowledged his sin to the Lord and did not hide his iniquity, 
God then forgave the iniquity of his sin. His transgressions after he confessed them were forgiving because God is a forgiving God and Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So that's the first thing. Jesus forgives sins. The second thing, the more you're forgiven, the more you'll love. Now I guess that's the obvious lesson from the text and it's well illustrated by the woman. I mean, was she reading the room, as we say? Was she aware of how all this looked? I think she was very aware of one thing, and that is that Jesus forgives, unlike the Pharisee. Now, she was also very aware of her sin and aware of the gracious God and Savior who forgives sins. She doesn't say anything, and we can only guess at her thoughts, but her actions speak volumes. She was determined to express her appreciation to Jesus, and she was not concerned with what others might think. Oh, I'll be judged by others? Oh, heavens, what will they think of me? That wasn't a problem for her. Her reputation was already in the toilet. Didn't bother her one bit what other people thought of her. Only thing that mattered to her was that this is the one who forgives. You know, if your reputation is the biggest thing for you, you'll never come to Christ. What will people think? I mean, this is the big hang-up for me as a young man, I, I just, I, I weighed this in the balance. I counted the cost. If I come out publicly for Christ, I'm going to lose all my friends. And that's exactly what happened. Because Jesus wasn't cool. And to identify as a Christian wasn't cool. And see, I was into being cool. Believe it or not, at one time I was cool. I know it might be hard for you to believe, but yeah. And my friends, we were cool. There was an image, there was a reputation. And when you're 20 years old, what your friends think are so important. Oh, those friends are so important. I'd tear my arm off for you, my friend. I can't even remember the names of some of those guys today. <laughs> Isn't that right? I mean, you think it's such a big deal. Friends, oh, they're more important even than family. No, they're not. No, they're not. Hey, have friends, be a good friend. I'm not down on friendship. But, but understand this, the most important friendship is friendship with God. That's the friendship. Well, she was aware of her sin, and that led her to express her gratefulness. So how can we benefit from her example? Well, we can ask ourselves, do I, do I have an awareness of my sin? Do you ever reflect on your sin? No, no, that would be too depressing. Well, yeah, it would be if you leave it there. But you go from reflecting on your sin to the grace of God that forgives sin and then you're able to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yeah, you know, the guy that wrote that, he was a slave trader. Of course it was amazing grace for him, but me, I'm not so bad. Well, that's only if you consider yourself in comparison with others. And then in comparison with others, you're not so bad. You're better than so-and-so and you're worse than so-and-so. But that's not the proper comparison. The proper comparison is with a holy God. 
And when Isaiah, who was a prophet, no less, has a vision of God and hears the angel say, holy, 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 he falls apart. He disintegrates in the presence of the holy God. Now, God mercifully puts him back together, but the point is, if you and I are aware of our sin, we'll be aware of the grace of God in forgiveness. Charles Bridges said it's important that we feel our abasement and maintain it with a corresponding and proportionate exercise of faith. He says, let us lie low, but let us look high. I like that. That helps us to humble ourselves. And as we humble ourselves, God gives grace to the humble. Why do we not think our sin is that bad? It's probably because we lack an awareness of God's holiness. But the more you're aware of your sin, the more you will appreciate God's forgiveness. And in that way, this woman can help us. Also notice Jesus' final words to her. He says, your faith has saved you. Not your love, not your tears, not your offering of yourself, but your faith. Faith is the hand that reaches out to receive the gift of forgiveness. And as the gospel will later show, Jesus is going to have to die so those sins could be forgiven. He will also rise from the dead. And when we believe this, that Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification, we're believing something called the gospel. And that simple message is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But it's your faith, not your works, that saves you in this sense. Now, of course, Jesus is the one that does the saving, but your faith links you to Jesus, and that very faith by which you believe in him is a gift that's given to you from God. It's also a command. God calls us to believe, and that's bound up in repentance. Repentance and faith always go together. Uh, my glasses, excuse me. I need to look at my notes for a moment here. The woman cried. You know, tears are a very amazing thing. They're an expression of human emotion. But unless you ask the question, you don't necessarily know why a person is crying. Woman, why weepest thou? You know who asked that question? Jesus asked that of Mary. She was weeping because they had taken away the body of her Lord and she did not know where they laid him. And supposing Jesus to be the gardener, she asked him, show me where it is. He is the one who said, woman, why do you weep? And then after that, he just said her name, Mary, and she knew that the one 
she was looking for was standing right there. That weeping must have been such a mix of emotions. Why was this woman weeping? Was she weeping because of her sin? Or was she weeping in grateful thanksgiving for the one who had forgiven her? I think, again, it was probably a mix of things. All the labors of my hands could not meet the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. We must not get the idea that because of our emotions, however strong they are, they somehow validate our forgiveness. The forgiveness comes from him. The tears are a response, an expression of that faith. And we dare not compare ourselves too much with others and their emotions because all people are different. Maybe you're a crier. Maybe you're not so much a crier. We can still benefit from what this woman has to say. Her tears were representative of her faith. Her faith was representative of her repentance and her belief that this is the one who forgave her. There's an implication here that she had already understood that Jesus was the answer. I mean, she came into this place knowing that he was there, bringing with her an ointment, and then she was overcome with emotion. Now, at some point... Her tears, which were profuse, were going to come to an end. And she was going to have to blow her nose and wash her face and get on with the rest of her life. We can have those moments where emotions overtake us. But I imagine that this woman, after this scene, went on to live a life of faithful followership because there's no indication here that she was a hypocrite. There's no indication that she was a phony. She never said a word, but interestingly, Jesus knew everything about her. She knew what she, he, he knew what she meant. So I think that's, that's the point for us. We want to be like the woman. We don't want to be like the Pharisee. Now, when you nail it down a little bit more, we want to be careful we don't get caught up in thinking, I have to repeat something emotional in order to fulfill God's will. Now, no, these kind of things are, are interesting. And if we trace it back again, the tears and the kisses are an indication of the desire to express thanksgiving. Because when he says, your faith has saved you, we know that he's commending her for believing in him. And now, this begets a life of faithful obedience. You know, there are three categories that kind of sum up redemption. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. The three G's. Uh, I wrote a book on the three G's. God, grandchildren, and golf. 
The first part of it's autobiographical. But that's just my cutesy way of getting into the real meat of the book, which is another three G's. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And we have to fit ourselves into those categories. The Bible talks about it. We're guilty because of our sin. But God is gracious and sent Christ to the cross. And when we receive that grace, it issues forth in a life of gratitude. So in the, in the New Testament, religion is grace and obedience is gratitude. Uh, you and I, taking a lesson from the woman here, we ought to express our gratefulness and appreciation to the Lord for His grace in dealing with our guilt. And follow on in that example of gratitude. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of this woman. Lord, thank you that she demonstrated appreciation. Uh, she was effusive in her praise for you. And that didn't make you feel the least bit uncomfortable. Lord, you received it. You appreciated it. You commended her. You pronounced forgiveness upon her. Others may be scandalized by forgiveness, but forgiveness is what you are all about, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, and Holy Spirit. We here who have been forgiven are grateful. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here who has not yet understood your grace of forgiveness, who has a reputation perhaps as being a sinner, and wonders, will I ever be able to shake it? Oh, Lord, you are the one who makes all things new. You are the one who makes new creations out of the old. You turn ashes into beauty. And you give joy where there has been mourning. Oh, Lord, strengthen and encourage us in this way and bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.